One of the things that I'm looking forward to, not in a week and a half, that's going to Thailand, but this is something else, is joining everybody, all of you and everybody else around the throne of God. Because there's going to be people from every nation there. Uh, in Revelation 5, verse uh, 9, it says, You are worthy. These are the elders and, and all around the throne saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, to open its seals, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And I'm looking forward to that day and I hope the rest of you are, you are too. But one of the things it says is there will be people from every language. And that's kind of my heart is to help make that happen because of this presentation. What you're going to hear and see is a little bit of the linguistic side of the Tower of Babel and why this particular problem, people from every language, is a problem, and it is. So having given that introduction, let's get going. One of the things you need to know about me and the guy way back there in the back who resembles me, um, we like creation science. Jonathan, our, my son, uh, majored in biology, and so he's got an interest in creation science from the biological standpoint, and I've just been interested in all sorts of things like that from when I was small, young, reading National Geographic and all their evolutionary stuff and then learning more and more about it. So Jonathan and I talk about this subject of origins and creation science, and the Tower of Babel is part of that. It's in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which sets the stage for what God has done throughout history. And what he's doing throughout history is bringing people from every tribe and nation and language to himself. So this is one of the things that scientists and, and linguists scoff at, the Tower of Babel. It's just a myth. And what I'd like to do in this presentation is show you the other side of the story. So let's get going. First of all, we want to uh, talk a little bit about language itself because that's the, that's the topic, that's what we need to deal with here because the Tower of Babel has to do with language. So we're going to ask the questions, these questions here, where did language come from? Is the Tower of Babel history or myth? What did the Tower of Babel look like? Which is a kind of interesting question. What did God do at the Tower of Babel and why did he do it? And then why are there 6,000 languages today and how do language barriers affect us? Okay, so this, those are some of the questions I want to answer. So first question, where did language come from? In Genesis 1, right at the beginning it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And now in verse 3 it says, and God said. There it is. Right in verse 3, God's speaking. So there's language right at the beginning. So then the question we want, we want to ask is where did language come from? And there are two possibilities. One is that language is an inherent characteristic of God. It's part of his own nature. We know there's a trinity and God speaks within the trinity. At least it's recorded in scripture that he does. And the other possibility is that God created language as part of this universe. So what God does in the Trinity may be something different, but what he does in this universe is he speaks. He speaks to us in this universe, and we can only understand what we experience. So God communicates to us in terms of our experience, and part of our experience is language. However, as we saw in the last slide, God is saying things even before or as he's creating the world. So it's, it, this is a kind of a philosophical question, and we don't really have an answer to it. Because if God is outside of this universe, then what is part of his nature outside of this universe is beyond our ability to understand. And this is part of our theology, that God is unknowable. We can know some things about him, but not everything. So what language actually is and where it comes from is a little bit beyond our pay scale. We don't really know where language comes from other than right from the beginning God is speaking. And he spoke this world into, into existence. When you look at his creation, it's a series of commands. 
he can command, he can issue a command and it happens, it comes into existence. So that's one of the things we know about him. All right, human language. Adam's created in the image of God, therefore Adam was created with the ability to speak. So we find right at the day one in the garden, God and Adam are speaking to each other. And we know also that each child is born with the ability to speak. And this is something that linguists have been dealing with in the, over the last 50, 75 years. They've been looking at why children can learn a language. You can take a child from the US, one year old, and transplant him to any language anywhere in the world, and he'll learn that language, even though he wasn't born there. So if you get him there early enough, he'll learn that language just like a native speaker. What that tells us is it has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with anything like that. Any child can learn any language in the world. So that means that there's something down deep inside of a child that enables him to learn a language. He's born with it. So linguists are trying to look at what it is that's inside the child, what he knows already, and why it is that he can learn any language in the world. And there's some implications of that. One is that every language in the world is similar in some ways to everything, every other language. There's an underlying similarity in all languages. And this is going to be an interesting point because it's going to come up a little bit later. Okay, God and language. We notice a number of things in the Bible. Jesus is called the word, the logos of God. And this word logos doesn't really mean word, even though that's the way we translate it. It really, it's the noun form of lego, which is the word to say. So we've got say, the verb form, and this is the noun form, and this is anything which is said is a logos. So it can be a sentence, it can be an entire story, it's an expression, something which is said. So Jesus is the speech or the expression of God. Okay. Scripture is also called the logos of God. We find interesting passages like this, Psalm 119. It's got 176 verbs, uh, excuse me, um, verses, and they're all variations on the phrase God says to me. So here's an example. I, that's the equivalent of me there. I've hidden your, that's where God comes in, and word in my heart. Okay, word is underlined here. doesn't look like it, and that corresponds to say. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what he's, he's saying is, this is a variation on this little phrase, and he's saying, God has spoken to me, and I hide that in my heart, and the purpose is so that I might not sin against you. And if you read Psalm 119, every single verse is like that. It's a variation on those three elements. Now, I'm a Bible translator because from early, early childhood, my folks read me the Bible, took me to Sunday school and church, and then as soon as I learned how to read, I started reading the Bible. So I can't remember exactly when I finished reading the Bible for the first time through, but it was something like third grade or fourth grade or something like that. And I've been reading the Bible just about every day ever since. I know that in eighth grade I made a commitment that I'd read the Bible every day. And so I've been reading the Bible every day since eighth grade, and it just, I can't imagine going through life without it. And so I know that missionaries were, you know, preaching the gospel and planting churches in places where they didn't have a Bible. And I thought, how are those people going to know God? How are they going to know what God wants of them? How are they going to avoid heresy and so on? And I couldn't imagine being a Christian and trying to walk with God without the Bible. So I decided I'd be a Bible translator. Um, evolution. Linguists like to talk about the evolution of language. It's kind of a, a newer topic in linguistics, but they've been talking about it on and off for a while. And I recently read a book, this book here, by Ray Jackendoff, professor of philosophy and co-director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. He's actually a linguist, and linguistics sometimes comes under philosophy. And he wrote this, this book, it's got one chapter on evolution, but it's mostly about his theory of language. This guy's brilliant. Uh, it's the kind of book that sprains my brain to try and understand it. So I. I was going to review another of his books, and I had to read this one just to understand his theory so I could review the other one, and it just proved to be a little bit more than, than I could handle. This guy really is brilliant. Okay, so we're going to see what a non-Christian linguist 
does with evolution. This is going to be a, a few quotes from the book, from this chapter on evolution. Proposals about language evolution face two major difficulties. One is a question of data. There is no direct evidence for early forms of language until the advent of writing about 5,000 years ago. And by then we are dealing with fully modern language. Now you think about that for a while. He's got no direct evidence, okay, for evolution of language. And we, we don't have anything until about 5,000 years ago. What happened about 5,000 years ago? A flood in the Tower of Babel. All right, and by then we're dealing with fully modern language. In other words, they didn't speak in grunts and groans. There's no caveman, ooh, ooh, ugh, ugh, me, Tarzan, you, great, you, 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 Jane. There's none of that 5,000 years ago. I can't speak as well as they did back then. I have problems speaking, in, so we're really going backwards instead of forwards. All right, there's also no fossil evidence. For the prior 5 million years, back before the 5,000, we can make only very indirect inferences. Okay, where is this evidence? It's only very indirect inferences based on the nature of artifacts such as tools and pictures. What do those tell us about language and the evolution of language? Zero. And on equivocal hints, well that sounds really solid, about the structure of the brain and the vocal tract. So the, you know, the brain size here, it, you know, supposedly grew and uh, they've got some fossil evidence, you know, the, the skull has a little hole where the nerve comes that controls the tongue. And you can look at the size of that little hole where the nerve goes through and say, well, maybe the nerve grew and so that n enabled you to, you know, have better control of the tongue. This stuff's just, you know, so we got very indirect inferences and equivocal hints. He's going to talk about fossil evidence in the Neanderthals. In short, there is virtually nothing in the paleontological record that can yield strong evidence about when and in which stages the language capacity evolved. So d does this sound like he's got stuff to base anything on? No. No evidence from other species. Animal communication, he's going to talk about animal communication. Thus there is no comparative basis in other species for most of the distinctive character characteristics of language, and in particular, no evidence for significant precursors of language in the apes. So if you look at animals, they can communicate, that there's no way of comparing the way they communicate with how we communicate and come up with anything that's going to tell us anything about language evolution. So what we do have, okay, we do not have comparative studies of language in other species. But in partial compensation, we have comparative linguistic typology as a source of hints. What he's, what he's saying is we can compare modern languages for the past 5,000 years. Okay, That's like looking at the people here in this room and trying to say on the basis of this we know what happened 5 million years ago. It's just, sorry, but all he's, all he's got is hints. So what he's really saying. Um, a second major difficulty in thinking about the evolution of the language capacity is internal to linguistic theory. So what he's saying here is that he doesn't like this particular theory and he's got a better one. So the common view of universal grammar, that's the idea that all languages share a basic underlying foundation, which what is called universal grammar. All languages have share certain things. So the common view of universal, universal grammar treats it as an undecomposable grammar box, no part of which would be of any use to hominids without all the rest. The syntactocentric perspective, in particular, that's the, the theory he doesn't like, presents serious conceptual difficulties to an evolutionary story. Now, his problem is that his theory isn't any better in this. So what he's really saying is that because we have universal grammar and because it's undecomposable, you can't have one part without all the rest and have it still work. And I think the next slide, okay. So he's meaning, what he's meaning here is language is irreducibly complex and could not have evolved. Do you all understand what the idea of, of irreducible complexity is? No? Okay. <laughs> this is an important 
important argument in recent years about evolution creation. It goes like this. Take a mouse trap. Mouse trap has a flat board and it has a, a spring and it has a, a sometimes a rectangular piece of wire which is called the hammer and it goes wham and catches the mouse. And it's got a little trigger that you put the bait on and it's got a couple staples to hold these things, these wires to the board. If you remove any one piece, for instance a spring or a staple or the wood base, the entire thing is worthless. It won't work. You have to have all the pieces together and they have to be in the right configuration in order for the thing to work. Take away the bait, the mouse won't come. Okay? Take, apart, take any piece away and the thing is worthless. So language is undecomposable. It's a whole, you can't take one piece out and have the thing work. That's what he's saying. And so what he's admitting is that language is irreducibly complex. If you take any part of it out, the whole thing won't work. Therefore, it cannot e have evolved. Syntax is useless without phonology and semantics, since it generates structures that alone can play no role in communication or thought. So syntax could not have evolved first, but phonology and semantics could not have evolved first, because in this architecture, that's the other, the other theory, they are simply passive handmaidens of syntax. So he proposes his own theory. Unfortunately, he's ignoring his own point here, that his theory isn't any better. He's also got phonology and syntax and semantics, but he just arranges them differently than this theory he doesn't like. But the problem is that his theory has got the same problem as this one that he doesn't like. And so he's ignoring the elephant in the room. The fact is, if you have syntax, well, let's start with phonology. You know what phonology is? That's how the sounds are made with the mouth. So I've got a series of sounds. I can say but and because and above. They all have a B in them, right? And that B is a set of movements of the mouth, and I can repeat it in various places in a word and throughout the sentence, and that sound and other sounds are repeated. And how we organize and make those sounds is phonology. It's the study of the sounds, how we make them and how we hear them, too. Syntax, that's how you string words together. You put affixes on them. So if I say, Ron loves Beth, you know who loves who, right? But if I say, Beth loves Ron, it's not the same meaning, right? Because I've switched the subject and the object. So now it's not me loving Beth, it's Beth loving me. Now I can say, um, Beth I love. Now what did I do? Beth I love. I now put the object first. We can do that in English as long as I say, Beth I love, but Jane I don't. You know, apples I love, but oranges I don't. So if I'm contrasting the objects, I can put them first. But otherwise, the object has to come after the verb. So the order of the words and how they are, you know, fit, up, fit all together into clauses and sentences, that syntax. You, you should have learned that in elementary or, or high school. Okay, now the, the grammar then, that syntax, that, I know, some of us didn't, some of us had to go to graduate school to learn this stuff. You've been to a different, been to, all right, now, semantics is what it means, all right, now, let's take away phonology, take phonology out, what's, what's left of language? I can think, right, because I've got meaning, and I can put words together, but I can't get them out of my mouth. Well, that's part of phonology. Phonology is, you know, the writing is just one way of expressing things. I mean, deaf people do sign language. You can write, you can speak, but that's all still the same kind of thing. It's expressing what's up here. But if you take away the ability to express it, language is gone. What happens if you take away grammar? You can string words together randomly, but nobody knows who's doing what to whom and what's happening. Because you've got to have grammar in order to make sense. What happens if you take away semantics? You can say all these wonderful sentences, they're all perfectly grammatically formed, but they don't mean a thing. So one of our famous linguists from last century, I'll quote him here in a minute, Chomsky, he gave this example. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. 
Now you think about that for a while. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. It's perfectly good as far as the sounds are concerned, and it's perfectly good as far as its grammar is concerned. What does it mean? Absolutely nothing. Okay? So you take any of these things away, and what do you got? Nothing. And this is what Jackendorf is ignoring. His own theory has got the same problem. Cannot have evolved. Now here's Chomsky's quote. He says, and Jackendorf, Jackendorf's quoting Chomsky here, and then he continues, it would be a serious error to suppose that all properties or the interesting properties of the linguistic structure that evolved can be explained in terms of natural selection. Well, if you don't have natural selection, do you have evolution? So how can you have structures evolving without natural selection? That's an important, essential aspect of evolutionary theory. So these three guys, and Jack and Doffs can continue, he says, as Tolman, Neumeier, and, and Dennett point out, this is virtually a retreat to mysticism. Ooh, ouch. Appealing to the simple increase in brain size, so hominids increased in brain size, plus the convergence of unknown physical principles. Okay, so that's all he's got to appeal to. We must not discount the possibility that Chomsky is right. Ooh, ouch. But surely it is worth attempting to make use of the tools at our disposal before throwing them away. And so he's going to make the attempt, and he's going to fail, and he should have just thrown it away and retreated to mysticism, which is really a belief in God, is what we really need here. Now, Chomsky is probably the most important linguist of the last century. So Chomsky's saying it, you know, it couldn't have evolved, and Jackendorf says, well, we, we at least got to try. All right. There we go. All right, now this is a little bit of background here so you can understand the next slide. An epistemic mood is one of these words here, like could, may, should, must have, certainly, and might. And they indicate, these epistemic moods indicate the degree of commitment of the speaker to the truth of the proposition. If I say, well, um, we, might, we might go to the bank tomorrow. Well, we must go to the bank tomorrow. Um, I think maybe it would be likely that we go to the bank tomorrow. Those are all epistemic moods, and they are indicating how certain I am whether or not we're going to go to the bank tomorrow. Okay. So I, I went to the bank this afternoon. That's why I'm thinking about going to the bank. We, we had to get Jonathan and Arlene to be on our account because we're going to go overseas and they're going to take over the bank accounting while we're gone. That's trust. That's trust. Okay. This, this definition came out of this book. So here's the thing. When you talk about something, you throw in epistemic moods, these kinds of words and phrases, to indicate if you believe what you're saying. So if I say, well, I heard that, how certain am I that it's true? I just heard it. I saw it with my own two eyes. Then I'm a little bit more certain. I'm absolutely sure this is right. See, it, it indicates my commitment to the truth of what I'm saying. All right, here's Jackendorf's epistemic moods that I pulled out of his chapter. Rather miraculous leap. He's talking about what he himself is saying. Never clear must potentially be regarded. Now, if it's must, but potentially, which is it? Must or potentially? <laughs> He's confused. I will not join them in speculating. And a few sentences later, he says, I could therefore concur with most speculation on the subject. So is he speculating? Is he willing to? We might speculate that. Perhaps we can potentially go back further in evolution. Potentially, maybe. I would like to think, I imagine that, it is unknown, might be, or alternatively, some indirect evidence suggests it is not clear to me, requires more investigation, might have been, bits of circumstantial evidence point to, could be seen as. Now, I, I observe this in Jackendorf's book, but I've seen this for many, many years in stuff on evolution. People writing about evolution throw this kind of stuff in to what they say. Why is that? It's not true, and they don't have the evidence to back it up, and they know at some level that what they're saying is speculation. 
and so they throw this stuff in. The interesting thing is, in the rest of Jackendorf's book, he's describing linguistic evidence, and he's presenting a theory, and there's none of this in the rest of his book. This stuff is only in the chapter on evolution. And if you'll read stuff on evolution, you'll see this kind of thing all through it. It's amazing. All right, uh, a couple more quotes, and then we better move on. I will make a number of assumptions without justification. Ooh, ouch. I will draw on evidence from child language, late, late second language acquisition. That's how Beth and I are going to learn Thai as late, we're late, and it's second language, and it's learning a second language. Aphasia, that's one type of brain damage, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, we've got a doctor back here, so. Pigeon languages, that's where people from different languages need to be able to buy and sell, and so they, they have about 200, 300 words and a pidgin language is a very simple, for, simple form of language. And ape language experiments. It is, of course, never clear how relevant such evidence is for evolutionary concerns. In particular, to what degree ontology really does recapitulate phylogeny, which is an old theory which has been debunked long ago. Nevertheless, this is all the evidence we've got. So we must make the most of it while recognizing that it should be taken with a grain of salt. All right, now this is, this is what one of the best linguists today can say about evolution, the evolution of language. This is about all he's got, okay? Now, what do we have? Well, we've got the Bible, and it's a whole lot more certain than what he's got. Here's a little bit of biblical chronology. I like going 500 years apart and, and noting who was alive at that time. 4,000 B.C., 6,000 years ago, Adam was created about. 500 years later, Enoch was born. 500 years after that, Noah was born. And approximately 2500 BC, the flood occurred. Now, the Tower of Babel probably was, happened somewhere around 2350. So 4,350 years ago. That's approximately when the Tower of Babel occurred because Peleg was born in that year. 2000 BC, Jacob was born and Abraham died about, they overlap by a few years. 1500, we had Moses, 1000 BC, David, 500, we had Zechariah. Daniel died a little bit before 500 and Esther was a little bit after, and then 0 AD, Jesus. So this is our chronology and that's where the Tower of Babel comes, okay? 4,350 years ago, about. All right, Peleg. Why is Peleg important? Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Literally, in his days, the earth was divided. That's a Hebrew idiom, which is a little bit different than our own English idiom. My grandmother used to say, in my day, and what did she mean? When she's talking to me, I'm a little elementary kid, and she's saying, in my day, when we rode the train, we dressed up. What she's saying, when I was your age, is what she's saying in my day. Now that's her expression and it means when I was your age, when you're talking to somebody. This means something a little bit different. This means in the lifetime of Peleg. That's what that phrase means in Hebrew. Okay, so during Peleg's lifetime, the earth was divided. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu, and after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. So Peleg lived 239 years, so if the earth was divided during his lifetime, it happened during that 239 years. That's what this says. So this only gives us an approximate date. Now most people are named when they're born, but we do know some people change their name. Abram changed to Abraham, Jacob changed to Israel, Naomi comes back and says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, because the Lord has made my life bitter. So it's possible he changed his name later. So sometime in these 239 years is when the Tower of Babel occurred, okay? Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. Now, we're going to add these up. Two years after the flood, then 35 years later, became the father Shelah. 30 years later, became the father Eber. Eber, after living 34 years, became the father Peleg. We add that up, and that we get 101 years after the Tower of Babel when Peleg was born. 
Now the question is, can the Tower of Babel have occurred 101 years after the flood? That's not a lot of time. And what we have to ask ourselves is, they were going to build a city, and it's going to be a big tower and so on, and we have to have enough people for the Lord to scatter. And so we've got to ask ourselves, were there enough families at this point in history to provide the number of families for the Lord to scatter? Because we know approximately how many languages we ended up with. So we've got to ask ourselves, is this enough time? So we start out with eight, eight people, known as in his family, and only three of them were having children, the three wives. So we, we, the next generation, we got three childbearing women, and if they had ten sons and ten daughters, or ten, ten children, and that's not out of line, because the, the list of the, the table of nations, the average number of sons is five. Okay, so this is not out of line. Okay, the average number of sons was five, and so having ten kids is okay. So we would have 30 children in our Faxad's generation. So that's the number of people we've got there in that generation. So we've got eight plus 30, we'd have a total of 38. So of 30, only 15 of them are women. We've got 15 couples. If they each have 10 kids, we've got 150. That's Sheila's generation. Then half of that is 75. We've got 750. Half of that is 375 times 10. We've got 3,750 kids in Peleg's generation. And that's not out of line because they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They lived a long time. They were bearing children quite late. So this is not out of line. We end up with about 4,688 people, which is enough to make us at least a small city and start building a tower. Okay? That means there's about 375 families in this generation. Okay? That's enough. We only have about 120, maybe as many as 200, depending on how you count, language families in the world today. So this is sufficient. If the Lord took one family, mother and father, and 10 kids, that's 12 people, we've got enough people for the Lord to divide the languages and scatter them. So this is within the realm of possibility. Okay, now the Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech, probably Sumerian. Sumerian is the oldest language. It's not related to any other. It's the oldest language in the Middle East. That's, it was probably what we know today as Sumerian, but I'm guessing. I'm, that's, that's my epistemic mood. I'm guessing. <laughs> that's one point I'm not sure about. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Why bricks? Why not stone? Because Babylon is in a floodplain and there's no stone within 100 miles of Babylon. All they've got is silt and clay. So it makes sense for them to make bricks. They used bricks instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Anybody know what tar is from? Oil. Is there any oil in the Middle East? Ah, okay. Does this make sense then? Sure, perfect sense. They, and they, then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let's look at this. Uh, okay, then they said, let's build ourselves a city. There's a problem there. Compare that with this verse, Hebrews 11.10. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. So what does God want us to do? He wants us to look forward to the heavenly city, and what were they doing? Building a permanent earthly city. See the difference? Then they said, with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now compare that with Jacob's ladder. He, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Now, Tower of Babel is literally a tower and its top, rosh, that's the normal word for head in Hebrew, in the heavens. And with a tower, with Jacob's ladder, a stairway placed on earth and its rosh reaching the heavens. So were these people very far off? No, they weren't. There is a ladder going to heaven. What were they trying to do, though? 
build their own. They're trying to build their own. They're going to get to God. See, they're going to make a way to get to God. That's one very possible interpretation of this. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city. Okay, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Contrast that with the Lord that said to Abram, I will make your name great. And to David, I will make your name great. What are they doing? They're making their own name great. But God's the one who will make our name great. Okay. And not be scattered. Okay? And not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Contrast that with God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Were they wanting to do that? No. They wanted to stay together. So, take these four things together, and what do we have? A city. They wanted a permanent home on earth instead of God's home in heaven. They wanted a tower so they could climb to God, or possibly to worship the heavens. They wanted a name, an arrogant desire for fame, and not to be scattered. They were refusing to obey God's command to fill the earth. So we have a serious problem here. So the question is now, what's God's evaluation first? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That doesn't mean they can achieve the impossible. What that means, if, if they plan to do something, there's nothing that's going to stop them. And this is a problem, a very serious problem, because we've got these problems. Once again, all mankind was rebelling against God. When did that happen before? Before the flood. So God destroyed them all, except for Noah. There was one man, righteous man and his family. That was all that was saved out of the entire race. And now, once again, they're rebelling against him. And it's the entire race. What's God going to do this time? He's already promised Noah that he would never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. So what's he going to do? Everyone spoke the same language so they could work together. They were united against God. There was no restraint on man. Therefore, evil can spread unchecked throughout the entire race, and there's nothing that could stop the group or a dictator or anything else. So what happens when Hitler decides he's going to conquer the world and wipe out the Jews? The other nations banded against him and stopped him. So that's what can happen if there's multiple nations. But if they're all together, what's going to stop a dictator? What's going to stop the Antichrist? Nothing, because he's going to rule the whole earth. All right, so what's God's response? He's promised no one ever again to destroy the earth with a flood, so he does something different. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord balaled, balal is the word here, the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So what did God do? Here's our question. What was it that God did there? Let's look at what the Tower of Babel actually looked like. This is Gustav Dory's uh, painting of it. It's tall, round, and with a spiral staircase. And look, big blocks of stone. Okay, there's another painting. Again, round, spiral. It looks more like a cathedral. Wrong. Big blocks of stone down here. Wrong. This would collapse under its own weight. They couldn't have built something like this. This is what it probably looks something like. This is a ziggurat of Ur, south of Babylon. Okay? Actually, the one in Babylon now is, there's almost nothing left of it except maybe a few pieces of the foundation. It was all used to build other buildings. Th these things, when they started deteriorating, were a wonderful source of building materials, piles and piles of bricks. So this thing is over 100 feet tall. This was um, rebuilt a long, long time ago, and then Saddam Hussein more recently fixed it up. This is another one. This is what most of them, or some of them, would have looked like. Just kind of a bit of it left. This is interesting because the uh, core is made from sun-dried bricks, the outer layers made from fired bricks, and there were reed mats every seven layers of brick. So the archaeologists love this because they can tell these things were made. This is what it looks like today. Again, thanks to Saddam Hussein, they've worked on fixing it up for the tourists. 
but that's the original and they've kind of tried to repair it. This is the best preserved one in near Susa in Persia. This is where Nehemiah and Esther lived. And so they would have seen this thing when it was in its glory. Now one of the things you need to notice about these things, they are square. They have steps. And there's a, you can't see it too well, but right here there's a stairway in the middle leading up to the top. There's another one over here. So here's the basic construction. Square, pyramid shaped, steps going up. Um, I'm talking about all the way around. These are called stepped pyramids. And there's a staircase leading up the middle of at least one of the sides. That's the basic construction of these. Now, these things are in the Middle East. They're all in the basic area around Babylon. The question is, is that the only place they're found? Turns out, no. They're also found in Egypt. The Egyptians made pyramids, but they didn't make a step pyramid like the ziggurats. They were a little different. We're, norm we're used to thinking of the Egyptian pyramids as flat-sided, but the earliest pyramids in Egypt were like this, stepped pyramids. They didn't make flat-sided pyramids. So this is um, Djoser's pyramid. Here's the next one they built. This was originally built as a, a, a for Pharaoh Huni. And notice it had at least three steps. It was pretty steep, and they never finished it. So the next guy came along, Sneferu. He was probably his son-in-law, the next Pharaoh. He decided to make one over the top of it use this as the center and build another one on the outside and he got partway up and it collapsed so he gave it up this one was never finished and all the stuff at the bottom is the remains of Sneferu's second attempt so Sneferu he still needed a, a tomb for himself here's his next attempt called the bent pyramid so he and his architect got up to this point and it started to crack and so oops let's make it a less steep incline, so that's why it's bent. Here's the, the edge of it, and so he decreased the angle. But it wasn't perfect, so try again. Now, does that look more familiar? All right, this is the Red Pyramid. This is Sneferu's third try, and he got it. All right, and this is made out of stone, and this is the classic Egyptian pyramid, 345 feet tall, okay? And here's the granddaddy of them all, the Great Pyramid of Giza, built for Pharaoh Khufu, 481 feet tall, and it was, four, it was the tallest man-made object in the entire world for 3,800 years until the British built Lincoln Cathedral and passed it up. 3,800 years later. Now, is that all of the step pyramids we find in the world? No. Here's one in Italy. It's not very big. But it's square. It's been partially reconstructed. Notice the steps. And notice the ramp staircase going up the middle of one side. It's kind of deteriorated, but they've partially reconstructed it. It's a stepped pyramid with a staircase going up the middle of one side. And that's in Italy. Here's one way over in Indonesia. It's late, 15th century, but it's also a step pyramid with a staircase going up the middle of one side, and it's religious. That's important. All of these things are religious. Here's another one in Indonesia. This goes back to the ninth, ninth century. A lot more ornate, very big, stepped pyramid with a staircase here going up the middle of one side, and it's religious. How about the New World? Here's one in Mexico, east of Mexico City. It's overgrown now. It's kind of a ruin. At the top is a Catholic church. Why a Catholic church? Well, back then, when the Spaniards invaded, they destroyed all the temples at the top to wipe out the old idolatry. But the people knew what these things were for. They were religious, so they converted to Catholicism. So what did they do? Built the Catholic church at the top. And we have a bit of it reconstructed. Notice the steps with a central staircase going up the middle of one side. And Beth and I have been here. This is Teotihuacan. 
north of Mexico City, temple, this is the, called the Pyramid of the Sun. The photo is taken from the Pyramid of the, pyramid of the Moon. I've been to the top of both of them. They are both stepped pyramids, and look down here. Little ones, stepped pyramids with a staircase going up the middle of one side. And on the top of these would all be altars and temples. And the next one is a close-up of the Tower, the Pyramid of the Sun. Notice the steps. And I've been up the top. If you can see it, there's people on this staircase right there. That shows you the size of this thing. They're huge. So where did they get the plan for these things? All right. Here's one more. This is down in southern Mexico, built by the Mayans in the Yucatan Peninsula. This is a very famous one because it's oriented for the spring and autumn equinoxes. It's built so that at those day, on those days of the year, the shadow from the edge here will fall on the side of the staircase. As the sun comes up, it makes it look like there's a snake coming down. And when the sun sets, it looks like the snake's going up. Very cleverly built, oriented to the heavens with an altar at the top. Square, step pyramid, stairway going up the side with an altar at the top. They're all over the world. We've even got one here in the US. This is in Illinois. It's made out of earth. The archaeologists say there was probably a 100-foot long building at the top. It's only got a couple of steps. It was made out of earth, so when it rained, it kind of slumped, so it's in bad shape. There was a, originally a wooden staircase going up the middle of the side. Today it's been replaced by a cement staircase for the tourists. Step pyramid, staircase going up the middle of one side. What does all this tell us? We're still building them today. This is the tallest building, man-made object in the world in Dubai. Steps, top reaching to the heavens. We're still trying to reach the heavens. All right, the Tower of Babel was very likely a step pyramid with a staircase leading up the middle up one side, possibly with a temple on top. The association with, of God with heaven from the beginning led to worship of the sun, moon, and the stars all through pagan religions. We have that. Interest in the seasons, astronomical observations, yearly rebirth, fertility, and astrology, all related to the sun, moon, and the stars. Temple and altars were built on high places. All through the Old Testament, we read about the high places. Why high places? Well, Israel had hills, so they didn't have to build you know, the, the big pyramids. But why high places? Because of the association with heaven, trying to reach heaven, trying to get as high as you can. That's why. Uh, we have Babel myths from around the world. I haven't had a lot of time to do a lot of research on this. I've gleaned these things from the internet, but somebody needs to do a lot more research here. That's a, also an epistemic mood. Not real sure about all these things. All right. They were all speaking the same language. All right. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and they scattered them. So let's look at this phrase, confused the languages. Okay, it's called Babel, and it's the, to, to confuse is the verb balal. It normally, in the, in the Old Testament, occurs 44 times. It normally means to moisten flour with oil. One time it's used to feed an animal, probably with a wet mash, which makes sense. But then this third meaning is to do something to a language only occurs here in Genesis 11, and we don't know what it means. Because as a lexicographer, you have to have lots of examples before you can figure out what it means. And I've only got two, and they're in the same passage. And it just means to do something to a language. That's all I can tell. So it doesn't tell us what God did. But it does tell us the result. So they could not, they, so they will not understand each other. So now, to find out what God actually did, we have to turn to linguistics. Fortunately, we do have some solid evidence of what God actually did because we've got the result. All right, so what's the result? There's approximately 6,000 languages of the world. Now, that doesn't mean God created 6,000 languages of the Tower of Babel, because some of these languages are related to each other, and they're descended from the same ancient language. So English is related to German and to Latin.
and to Greek, and to Russian, and to Persian, the language of Iran, and most of the languages of Afghanistan, and most of the languages of Pakistan, Nepal, India, and Bangladesh. We're all related linguistically. Okay? But other languages are totally unrelated to us linguistically. All right, so we're going to look a little bit at that. Linguists have studied the languages that are related to each other and attempted to reconstruct the ancient parent languages. How many languages can we re reconstruct? Approximately 120. Some people would say a little bit more than that, maybe as many as 200. So then that means that each of these 120 languages, give or take some, was created by God at the Tower of Babel. That's what God did. We know that because we have solid evidence. I don't have to use an epistemic mood like maybe or possibly. We know that's what he did. We don't know exactly how many he created, but we know that's what he did. He created about 120 languages at the Tower of Babel. Bingo, just like that. And they all spoke 120 different languages. Probably each family or each clan. So each of these things, we, these group of related languages, we call a language family. And we belong to the Indo-European language family because it stretches from India, Indo, to Europe, European. Indo-European is what we call our language family. So we call then each reconstructed language that was spoken at the Tower of Babel a proto-language. Now the linguists won't say created at the Tower of Babel. That's what I'm saying because that's what the Bible says. God did. So we call those things proto-languages. So our language, spoken nearly two and a half thousand years ago, today we call it proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European. That's what we call our language family, our, our proto-language. There's two ways of looking at how languages split and grow. This is one, the family tree model. So we have Proto-Indo-European, here we have Proto-Germanic and English and German. Another branch would be Latin, and we got Italian and French from Latin. The Slavic languages include Russian and Polish. Okay, so we can con construct a tree like that. Okay, the wave model, these languages are all close to each other geographically, so they influence each other. They borrow words from each other. So we borrowed a lot of words from French. Switzerland, is, there's no Swiss language. They either speak German, Italian, or French, and they're all close there, mixed together, so they influence each other. Let's look at some Indo-European words. The word for father, mother, brother, and sister. In German, it's Vater, Mutter, Brother, and Schwester. And going down this way, we see Father, Vater, Vater, Pater. Uh, my Greek font didn't work. That's Pater, and Sanskrit in India is Pitar. And we reconstruct it as, not that, that square means that the font on that computer isn't reading this letter right. It's pater. That's supposed to be an accent mark right there. So we can reconstruct these, these words, what they were at the beginning, with a fair degree of, of certainty. That's also an epistemic mood, a fair degree of certainty. All right? And... And by comparing multiple languages and working out the rules that account for how this word would have changed into those, this is what linguists do for fun. And it can be fun. It actually is fun. It's like a giant puzzle, working out the rules. We can reconstruct the original Proto-Indo-European language. Now, when we can do this for a group of languages, we, we, can be, we can be confident that these all belong together. They are all descended from the original parent Proto-Indo-European, and the interesting thing is language family after language family has been reconstructed in this way, and we can kind of estimate how old these language families are, how far back they go. It's on the order of about 4,000 years. It's not 400 years, and it's not 40,000 years. It's on the order of 4,000 years these languages all converge. Why would that be? I wonder. Here's the word father. Okay, we already saw that. But look at Japanese, chichi and otosan. And I spoke Japanese a little bit when I was a kid, and I remember those words. Chinese has fukin and baba. 
Tai has po and bida. We'll soon be learning that. Hebrew has ab, like an Abraham. Swahili has baba, and Cheyenne has chane. Do those sound anything like pater? Nope. Nope. That means they're not related. And we'll see that in word after word. Here's the word one. One, ein, en, unus, oinas, and ena are all from oinas. But we have ichi, yi, nung, ehad, moja, noka. They're not very similar. Next one. Water. Water, wasser, vand. Aqua in Latin is from a different word. Hudor and hudan. They are all actually from wed plus some suffix. Okay, and we also get wet from this word. All right, but mizu, shui, nam, mayim, maji, mape. Oh, you might say, oh, ma, ma, ma. That's similar, right? Unfortunately, mai is the root and im is the plural suffix. And in Swahili, ma is the plural prefix and ji is the root. So it's mai and ji which are comparable and they're not at all alike. So linguists play these games and we figure this stuff out. All right, here's the word head. Head, kopf, or hopt, hovid, kaput, kefale, chiras. Those don't sound very similar, but they are actually all from the root kap. Okay, but Japanese has atama, to, sisa, rosh. That's that same word. Remember head? The, tower reached, the head of the tower reached to heaven, kichwa, and mekko. Not very similar. All right, now you're wondering, how do we get H out of K? Well, that's a regular rule. K in Proto-Indo-European went to H in English. We have kad, which meant sorrow or hate in Proto-Indo-European. English has hate. K goes to H, the D went to a T. Kylo meant whole or injured. We have whole or hail, H. Kop, meaning grasp, we have have, haft, heavy, and heave. K goes to H. Cared, we have heart. K goes to H. Konk means hang. We have hang, hung, and hinge. The O here became a U. That's actually, this hung is closer to, the, to this word here. And the vowel can change in Indo-European. So these all are very nice. It shows a regular correspondence between K and H. This is also important. When we can find lots of words that are similar between different languages and they follow these regular correspondences, we're pretty we are very certain that they all belong to the same language family. All right, let me, uh, if, if I do too much of this technical stuff, you're going to all start falling asleep. So I'm going to figure out how to do this. Hello, there. Let's look at Udo as taken. This is going to go real fast now. Here's the word for water. Pa, pa, paya, pa, pa, ba, pa, pal, 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 pala, pat. Can you see any similarities here? Pal, adal, and at, no, those are different. Pawi, bam, bal, bawi, vam. You see there's a lot of words that are similar. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. So this is one language family, Udo as taken. Where is this spoken? Anybody know? Where are the Utes? Nevada. Hopi belongs to this, right? Is Hopi in here? Here's Ute, here's Hopi. The Aztecs lived around Mexico City. All right, here's Suan from Su. This is where this language family is spoken. Here's the same word water. Be the mini, no, excuse me, miri, mini, 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 ning, ni, 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 nina, ani, ani, yanghi. Any similarities there? All right, here's Austronesian. We worked in the language just to the south of this in the Philippines, and our word for water was ig. Waig, wahig, ig, waig. And we're not sure if this was a G or an R, way, Y, Y, and you can see there's similarities here. All right. Now, I'm going to put you to sleep if I do this too much longer. So let's go on to the language families of the world. This is the biggest one. Beth and I, in our last couple terms in Africa, we were working, I was doing a lot of work in this language family. And I helped start four projects in this language family. One of them's finished. The other three are almost finished. Okay. So, I have a, a New Testament from uh, Suba. Yeah, published New Testament. Uh, 200 million speakers, 1,436 languages. 
Now, they came from Tower of Babel here. The Lord scattered them all over the world. One of them came down to about this area here and then spread out from there. So I don't know how long it took them to get there. The Lord scattered them. It must have taken them a little while, but they came down here. So this is where one group went. The other group, the Genesis 11 talks about the maritime peoples, and they scattered all over. This is one of them. They live in all the islands of the Pacific, except most of New Guinea and Australia. They, they have all the rest of them. They like boats. Big language family, 1,236 languages today. This is not too many speakers, only 3 million, but 539 languages. And this is the group in New Guinea. The reason they're not, there's not too many people is they are all divided up by all these very steep mountains and rivers. So there's a lot of little languages. All right, this is our language family, only 425 languages, but we're scattered all the way across through here. There are more speakers of this language family than any other. Afroasiatic is the, the family of Hebrew and Arabic all across North Africa, all the way down in, here into Ethiopia and, and, and so on. And this is all of them. Okay. Now notice that there are not too many language families in Europe, Asia, and Africa. They're very big. There's only four of them in Africa. There's only two of them, really, in Europe. This is the Turkic languages, including Turkey. This is Chinese. Thai is this little one here. Vietnamese is a pink one here. Okay, these in, in uh, India are Dravidian. This is Afroasiatic, Nilo-Saharan, Niger-Congo, and Khoisan. It's, it's a click, those are the click languages. Those are the fun ones. But notice North and South America, a lot of little language families. This is less studied, and it's more difficult to figure out how they're all related. So there's about 120 of these things. Okay, now, that's what our job is as Bible translators. 6,000 languages. We'll study one language family and help each other, but when you go to the next language family, there's not much we can do to help because the language families are very different. Underneath, we're all the same. But the arbitrary things, like the words we use and so on, they're just entirely different. The grammatical structures are very different. Underlyingly, though, there's universal grammar. All languages have nouns and verbs and roots and suffixes and grammar and so on, and we can identify universal rules. But going from language family to language family is tough. So a linguistics consultant like me really needs to try and concentrate on one language family. But the Lord keeps move, moving us around. So now I work on a global scale, helping Bible translators all over the world do dictionaries. And the Lord raised me in Japan, sent me to the Philippines, sent me to Uganda, but had me working in this green Nilo-Saharan language family for a while, and then in Niger-Congo, and now he's going to send us over here. So I've got this, and I also studied Hebrew from this language family and, and Greek and whatever, so I've got a, a wide experience. All right, these are all the language families of the world. It's a lot of them. It's, this is just the families. So this is what God did at the Tower of Babel. He created all these languages. Now, the linguists would like us to be able to construct proto-world because the evolutionists would say they should all descend from one parent language. True or false? Is that what we find? The evidence is no. So while researchers are able to reconstruct languages that date back thousands of years, about 4,350 to be precise, there is still a question mark over whether it would ever be possible to go even further back to recreate the very first proto-language from which all others evolved. But there's a question mark over that, and they're trying and failing. Here's what they would like to do. All the different language families, Proto-Indo-European, Proto-Austronesian, and Proto-Niger-Congo, they'd all, they'd, you know, got 120 of those, they'd like to be able to reconstruct Proto-World, but they can't. And so what they actually find is what we find in biology. Instead of it all going back to a common ancestor, we find that there are things like the dog family, and the cat family, and the cow family, and we have different 
species or subspecies, and they're all related and they can interbreed. But we can't go back further because all those things, the missing links are truly missing. And the proto-world is truly missing. Why? Because God created all these different language families. And what God says in his Bible and what we actually find as hard evidence agrees. What the evolutionists say is highly suspect and they use all those epistemic moods which say, I'm not real sure. All right. The lasting impact of Babel. God protected the world because evil cannot spread throughout the entire world when we can't speak to one another. God has always stopped or limited, limited conquerors and emperors. So Daniel gave visions of these big empires, but they didn't last very long. Efforts to establish a one-world government or a global village are dangerous. Missionaries have to overcome the language barrier just to preach the gospel, and Bible translators have a big job. But it's possible because God left this universal grammar so that we can translate from one language to another because underneath the semantics is based on universals. And because the semantics is based on universals, we can translate from one language to another. So it's possible. All right, bibliography, and I got photo credits and map credits, which if you're really interested, you can get a copy of the thing. All right, time's up. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs>